McKinsey & Company Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice, I'm Sean Brown and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. Today we're talking about bias, specifically how executives can fall prey to cognitive and organizational biases that can get in the way of good decision making. McKinsey partner Tim Kohler and Dan Lavallo, a former McKinsey consultant and professor of business strategy at the University of Sydney, recently wrote a series of articles on this topic. Today's discussion will be specifically about how executives can take what is called the outside view to remove biases. Tim and Dan recently joined me in our New York office to discuss the article. Tim, let's start with an overview of your article series on what you call bias busters. What prompted the series and what are you trying to achieve? Thank you, Sean. Over the last several years, we've observed that our clients often run into difficulties making important strategic decisions about allocating resources, mm -hmm. uh, investment decisions, those kind of things. And what we've discovered is that oftentimes it is because of sort of internal biases in the way they make decisions or decision-making processes aren't able to overcome a lot of the biases that that we have all have as humans. And what we've discovered in talking to the researchers and, and others is that in order to overcome those biases, you really need to overcome the, the way the organizations actually make decisions, the rules that they use, the procedures that they go through. And so we've been working on how do you help companies overcome those of those biases. And we have a, a whole collection of biases and how you overcome them. And Dan came up with the, the great idea of saying, let's write a series of very short articles to make it very accessible, each one of them, so we have a complete collection of biases, but in particular, how you overcome these biases by changing the way organizational decisions are made. Dan, in this particular article, which is the first in the series, you discuss this notion of the outside view versus the inside view. Can you tell us a little bit more about what that means? Quite a while ago, uh, I think about 1993, Daniel Kahneman and I came up with the term, the inside view and the outside view to explain uh, different modes of thinking. And, uh, you know, as an aside, I've been carrying him since then. But let me just uh, explain what, uh, what was going on at that time. The inside view is the way people usually think about decisions. So in other words, they start on the problem and they build the case. Oftentimes in business, the case starts with an Excel spreadsheet and you start putting in numbers and things like this. And they look into a crystal ball and try to see the future, right? And plan that future out in advance. Uh, and that's the natural way to think. Uh, but what you can another way to do it is to use lots and lots of analogies mm -hmm. or cases. And when you use these cases, uh, you take a more statistical view. And these cases have been used widely now. In the UK, for transportation projects, you have to use a form of it's reference required. class for it. It's required. In Iraq, Colonel Kalev Sepp at the natter of the Iraq war came up with 53 cases in, in 72 hours to help re-navigate where that conflict was going with temporary success. <laughs> and, uh, and so the outside view is statistical, and that's the basic difference between the inside view and the outside view. Got it. So taking the outside view sounds like a really good idea, but how do people actually do it? 
with the outside view combats is a number of biases, including optimism and overconfidence and even anchoring and things like this, but that's a little bit off topic. But let's focus on optimism and forecasts. That's the main thing that this attacks. And there are several ways you can do it. There's an outside view technique that Tim would probably, I'll talk about a couple. Tim, if you could talk about the momentum case, mm-hmm. which is an outside view technique that works quite well. Yeah, one of the things that we're now working with clients on is to help them to think when they're developing, particularly their strategies or their forecasts for performance, thinking about how an outsider might look at their markets and how they're evolving, and therefore whether the plans are realistic or not. What we've found in a number of high-profile companies where they set targets for performance for the year, let's say, that are divorced from sort of what's really going on in their marketplace um, because they're always optimistic that they're going to be able to uh, overcome whatever forces are out there. And of course, they're not taking into consideration what's going on with the competition, what's going on with the bigger market. So by- And that's the inside view. That's the inside view is you focus on what you're going to do and you don't balance it against an outside view, in this case, the momentum case. And or, for example, I know the number of cases where companies say, well, we're going to cut costs and it's going to increase our profits by this much without realizing, well, their competitors are cutting costs as well. So they're probably going to end up passing those savings on. And Uh, that's actually another manifestation of the outside view, which is people act like they're playing up against a brick wall rather than a partner. It's called competition neglect, which is another manifestation (laughs) of it. And the number of companies that say set a new market entry plan yes. mm-hmm. and don't plan for the reaction of the competitors, that's about 90%. <laughs> that's great. So it sounds like the, you know, the outside view can provide almost a counterweight to that internal optimism. And how far apart are they usually in your experience when you've worked with folks to bring in the outside view? Are we talking massive differences between the outside view and the inside view? I, I can tell a story about the movie industry. So I thought I was going to get rich. That's the important, that's the importance <laughs> of this that. story. Um, <laughs> so I did a study along with Colin Kammer, who was uh, recently a good friend and won the MacArthur Grant. And what we were able to do was forecast movies, their domestic box office, based on simply a poster and you know a one-line thing that's a two-line thing on Metacritic. And what we got was the similarity ratings between the focal movie we were trying to predict and a reference class of you know sort of 40. Superhero movies, movies, for example, or whatever. Right. That, right. The reference class was formed by genre, actors, and storyline. That's it. That's you know, took the intersection of those, and there are more than enough movies and presented them to them. And when you added similarity ratings, first of all, they're very powerful on their own, but when you added similarity ratings to the typical regression type things that they use, like budget and you know that sort of, uh, if it, is it an action movie, sure. that sort of thing, our mean average residual error was 25%, uh, which is exceedingly low for something like that, based on all they needed was a poster and a paragraph about the movie. And the cost of doing this, you know, is a movie, give them a movie ticket, give the subjects a movie ticket. The reason I thought I was going to get rich was because I got the meeting with with the head of the studio and I showed him our data and walked him through the data. 
And I said, you know, what's your error on average? And they said, uh, 100%. If you think a movie's going to make 100 million, it makes 50, it makes 150. We're, you know, we're just not close. So I said, well, you know, I can cut that by 75%. How about, you know, let's, work let's, let's, yeah, let's work together. And he thought for a while and said, no, I, I, don't, I don't think I can do it. And I said, well, how many analogies do you use to make forecasts of movies at the beginning? And he said, well, sometimes we use one. In other words, they use almost all the inside view. And I said, what's the most you've ever used? He said, two. And so, and so I said, well, do, do you believe what I'm doing? If, if you don't believe me that we did this beforehand, give me your next slate of movies. If I'm helpful, you pay me. If not, free. I thought, you know, right. can't, can't go wrong there. And he said, and this is where he was very honest, he said, no, it's not that. I get to pick 12 movies a year, and I'm only in this job for a few years. And I don't want evidence out there that I should have done something different. <laughs> very candid. And there was no money for me. <laughs> Well, hopefully there's some money for our <laughs> listeners, Tim. It's not like you. I, I was just going to ask Dan, in my experience, it's very difficult for the people who are directly responsible to do the outside view, right? Mm -hmm. And is it easier to do the outside view if you have someone else in the organization challenging the inside view as opposed to the person, the business unit head or the project lead doing the outside view? Well, the best is when the government mandates it, <laughs> in the case of the UK infrastructure. But I think you need to make it a, a part of how you forecast, like it has to become right. part of your process. Somebody needs to champion it once, but people think it's really hard to do because you've got to collect all these comparable cases, which in the case of movies is easy, but they're still using one analogy. But I think Colonel Kalev Sepp put the lie to that when he when he came up with 53 examples of counterinsurgencies and he didn't go back hundreds of years, he just went back, I'm not quite sure, I think, I think it was back to like World War I or, or maybe World War II, mm -hmm. and he did that in 48 hours. Wow. So if you want to do it, you it's can possible. do it. Yeah. One of the things I've observed though in, in, in a lot of larger organizations is that there's no mechanism for creating the outside view and there's no person, people to do it, right? And what, for example, you would you would think that in most cases, the in a large company with multiple business units, that there would be a, the corporate financial planning and analysis sure. group would be responsible for evaluating and thinking about the plans that are coming in from the business units. And yet, in many cases, in order to be more efficient and cost cutting and all that kind of stuff. The corporate teams have barely enough time just to add up all the numbers from all the different units. So oftentimes you don't have any systematic outside view. The only view information you're getting is from the business units themselves or the project leaders as opposed to someone else looking at it. So one of the advantages that private equity firms have is they have a team of analysts who is constantly scrutinizing what's going on in their portfolio companies, right? right? Big corporations often don't have that. So in order to have an outside view, um, and it'd be interesting to get your perspective on that, I, I also think you need to have a mechanism to make sure it's not just 
the project leader doing it or the business unit leader doing it, but there's also someone there to, to challenge it. Like a disinterested party, if you will. Danny and I really screwed up when we named this the outside view, and we only came to realize it later. Because we, we don't mean an outside party when we talk about the outside view. We mean statistical data. Okay. And, and that often naturally gets confused and why we didn't think of it, you know, we didn't think of it because we couldn't foresee how it would be used. But, but would you, I guess in the larger organizations, what I would see, sometimes it's easier for, the, for someone outside the BU or the project uh, to do that statistical true. analysis, okay? So, or take that more rigorous sort of scientific approach uh, as opposed to the people responsible directly for that project. Yeah, that, that makes sense to me. But I, I would want them to be, ideally, it should be in the same organization and the same, uh, it should be part of the due diligence sure. yeah. for every important forecast. It seems that one of the key challenges there, though, is figuring out what those reference cases are. Yeah. Um, are there any specific skill sets or techniques that really help somebody who's trying to take the outside view do it effectively? It's part art and part science, right? Well, a way to think about it for those who know how to do regressions, and I'm not going to assume everyone does, but they would be the main variables in your regressions. In the case of movies, you know, it's genre, it's, it's actor, Actors. it's storyline, it's things like that. Mm -hmm. And then you could also thin it by budget, but budget is a continuous variable, so you might as well just plug it into the regression. Uh, you can do it with almost anything. For example, EMI with CT scanner. Mm -hmm. If you wanted to make a reference class for how they were going to do on entry, you might look at new technology advancements in medical devices. Okay. That would be one thing. De novo entrance in the field because they weren't in, they weren't in the space. They weren't in the space. Um, and a couple other things, and that forms your reference class to give you a likelihood of success. In their case, the likelihood of success was quite low. Uh, and they ended up, in, in the end, losing money on the project, even though the scientist who invented this CT scanner, Jeffrey Hounsfeld, won the Nobel Prize. So it uh, was an awful good silver lining, and it saved a lot of lives. But big companies like Siemens came in and they had all the technology and it was just the usually the winners are people who are already in the space and then they see the work that the new technologies produce and they come and say thank you just another example that in the corporate world recently read an article about autonomous vehicles and mm -hmm. the impact that that would have electrification and autonomous vehicles and the Supposed expert was suggesting that as a result of this introduction of autonomous vehicles and different ways of uh, providing services to customers, that car companies would go from making one to two thousand dollars of profit per car to thirty thousand dollars of profit per car, and of course without any backup. But you know the, the the logical approach to do to to sort of looking at the outside view is to look at all the innovations that have occurred, you know, over the last forty years in the automobile industry and how that affected profits and how that even affected the profitability of the first innovators, right? right. Uh, to see whether or not, in fact, you know, you can keep those profits or whether or not, because everyone sort of copies as everyone else so fast, but by looking at sort of what happened in other situations, you might be able to be more cautious about that. So we talked a little bit about how a company can do this. Typically, they've got to have somebody on the inside who is thinking about this, 
who understands what the appropriate reference cases are. You talked about the way that the UK has required this for transportation projects. Can you talk a little bit more about how they actually mandate it? Because I'd imagine that if you were running a transportation project and you select specific reference cases, you can sort of tweak the results. So is every bidder on a project required to use the same reference cases, or how does it work? Your point about the reference cases is everyone should agree on them because you yeah. you can tweak things. So before you show the answer, you should get buy-in from the team that these are our reference cases right. so you don't adjust your reference cases right. after the fact. So I think that's a very good point. And you should get buy-in from the entire team, including the, the topmost decision maker on the problem, about the reference cases and then do the analysis, not show up with a piece of analysis that they may or may not like and tell you to go back and redo it. So I've actually read this use of the outside view can also be helpful if you are about to embark on a major home renovation, <laughs> where people tend to be very optimistic about the time it'll take to yep. get it done, yep. uh, the cost. Have you had any experience with that, Dan? Well, I'm having some direct experience with choosing the right reference class for my, this is a little morose, but um, my mother and father passed recently, and my sister and I, for reasons unknown, I'm essentially the seller and she's the buyer. And we've had a, only one analogy, and we've agreed that we're going to agree on the set of reference classes to determine <laughs> what check gets written to me. So it can come in for many things like home renovations, sure. where you'd look at what goes on in the area, and uh, apparently in probate as well. <laughs> I just recently renovated our our master bathroom and uh, without doing this very scientifically I just automatically assumed that it would take twice as long as the contractor said and cost 30% more so I sort of built that in just based on listening to what other people's experiences were so I did it sort of intuitively without doing it very uh, scientifically. And were you pretty much on the yeah, money? Yeah pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> now an important thing that uh, we shouldn't finish without saying is even building the reference class yes. helps you not only with forecasting it helps you generate ideas. You're looking at all these cases instead of just taking the inside view or just looking at one analogy or two analogies. And you've got all this information. It can give you ideas on different strategic paths to, yeah. to take as well. Yeah. So collecting the reference classes not only helps forecasts, but it helps be more creative in the strategy room. So for the reference cases, you don't want to just look at the outcome. You want to look at what they did. Yeah. I mean, if you're getting the information anyway, why not, why not, right. why not get a little bit more? And it can often give people ideas to do things that they wouldn't have otherwise done. And so practically speaking, for companies that are looking at embarking on major capital investments, is this the kind of information that one could pull? from financial statements? Or how does one actually dig into this? If you're in financial planning and analysis and you'd like to bring the outside view into your evaluation of you know, the next three projects that come before you, how do you do it? Well, it, it? A lot of it will depend on the industry. And it's not something you can pull from the financial statements. But if you're in, if you're like, say you're in the chemical industry, right? Yeah. One, you've done these things before yourself. Sure. And secondly, the chemical industry, it's pretty easy to see what your peers have done and what's worked and what hasn't worked, mm -hmm. okay? Mm -hmm. Because these are big visible projects oftentimes. So oftentimes, a combination of 
past projects with inside the company, plus knowledge of what your what's what your peers have done, which either is you know sometimes your employees will know. There will be people who will know what's happened in other companies and what their experiences were that you can bring into this as well. This is an important point. There are sort of three types of learning that can go on. One, if you're the decision maker, you learn from your own past experience. Two, and, and this is in decreasing order of what gets used, you learn from your own past experience. Then you can learn from the company that you're working for or the organization that you're working for's past experience. And then the step that people rarely take is learning from others' experience. And there's an awful lot of information there. And I haven't been presented with a problem where I couldn't come up with a reference class. Sometimes it might not be that huge, but part of the theory of the reference class is biblical. Uh, it comes from Ecclesiastes, and it's, there's nothing new under the sun. Depending on the lens you look at it from, you know, there's something to be learned. Even if you think what you're doing is completely brand new, if you abstract a little bit, you'll be able to find a reference class. I think it's interesting that you brought up that point that the outside view can actually be based on inside experience. Mm -hmm. um, it's just that you have to be objective about it. Th this has been great. Any final thoughts you'd like to share before we close out our podcast? I think when you when you your last statement was about the Bible, you got to stop there. <laughs> Going to drop the mic. <laughs> Dan, Tim, thank you so much for the time today. We look forward to our next podcast on bias busters. Thank you. Thank you, Sean. For a full transcript of today's episode and links to all of our past podcasts, please check out our page on mckinsey.com under the Strategy and Corporate Finance section. While there, you will also find the other articles in our Bias Busters series. If you'd like to receive updates on all our new content, you can sign up for email updates on our website or follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook. 